This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Patrice Petro, and I'm here with distinguished professor Lucy Fisher to discuss Alan Renee's 1959 film, Hiroshima Mon Amour. So, to begin, in our early conversations, I was lucky enough to be at a conference with um, Lucy in the fall, and I was telling her that we were interested in doing a series on the new waves, and she told me, you said, that you thought, uh, you find Hiroshima Monomor to be the most radical of French new waves film, French new waves film. So can you say more about this? What is the film doing that's new in terms of technique and style of filmmaking? What does about it comes to stand for the new wave? Right. Well, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's made in the same year as The 400 Blows, which, though a wonderful film and ends on the famous freeze frame that people thought was pretty radical back then, um, is a fairly conventional drama, you know, very sensitive about a a young boy um, in trouble in his family and in society. And then it comes one year before... Breathless, you know, which becomes known for its homages to American film, jump cut, etc. Um, but this film, it seems to me, is far more radical than either one of, of those um, in a variety of ways. First of all, I have to say personally, it's one of those films that when I first saw it um, as a graduate student in cinema studies, knocked my socks off. I mean, you know, there's not that many films that do that. I remember Ziga Veritas, a man with a movie camera, Maya Deren's Meshes of the Afternoon. There are those films that just stun you um, with being so interesting and different. So what I would say is, number one, it combines so many different modes of um, filmmaking and presentation. I mean, you've got the sort of love story kind of a fiction drama. You've got the avant-garde opening, which is, um, you know, almost like Willard Moss's Geography of the Body or something like that. Um, you've got the documentary um, footage of the museum and everything that that implies, but you also have documentary recreation at various points in the film that, you know, almost questions documentary. Were the um, it's the quintessential literary film in a good sense of being literary as opposed to a kind of pedestrian adaptation. Um, but word and image, you know, can we think of many films in which the juxtaposition of word and image is so interesting? We have a film or films within a film. And then, um, you know, we'll talk about this more, and I don't want to go into all of it, but the serious nature of the subject matter of this film is stunning. You know, what it comprises, talking about the atomic bomb, about other aspects of World War II, the German occupation of France, um, trauma, madness, memory, forgetting. I mean, the list goes on, but that would be... So I just find it so much more substantial than... Breathless. I mean, that may say that I'm too serious and I should have a better sense of humor, but... <laughs> well, my next question was, is, is kind of related okay. to that, um, really just getting you to say a little bit more. Um, because, like, uh, as you were saying, unlike other films of the French New Wave, uh, Hiroshima Monomora is starker and more serious in, in, in its tone. 
Um, is this a distinction between the left and right banks of French film culture? For instance, critics have claimed that left bank filmmakers were drawn to cinema through their interest in aesthetic experimentation, documentary practice, and the arts beyond cinema, and certainly the, the question of language is being very central. Um, and you said a little bit about them, but perhaps you could say more about its aesthetic experimentation that seemed so, especially when you first saw it and later seeing it again tonight. Right. Well, first, the left bank, right bank um, kind of distinction. I mean, one difference between René and, let's say, Godard or Truffaut is um, he's, it's an old, he's an older generation, not way older. He's about eight years older than Godard, I think 10 years older than um, Truffaut, um, but he's associated also with, with a different group of artists in particular. Um, Chris Marker, who's a year older than René. Um, Agnes Varda, um, René um, edited one of Varda's um, mm-hmm. short films. In fact, he, he was a film editor. I mean, that was sort of where he first... Um, and they were interested more in the other arts, literature, music. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. score, Giovanni Giovanni. Fusco's score for this film is amazing. And um, so interest in the other arts, I mean, of course, we can talk about this more, but René made all of these art documentaries on um, Gauguin, um, on Guernica, um, and um, also Statues Also Die About African Art. Um, And I think they were more, they were political earlier than Godard, you know, who goes into it more with films like La Chinoise in 1967. So um, there's that, which I think is a distinction. And also, he wasn't part of, like, the Cahiers du Cinema group of critics Mm -hmm. becoming filmmakers. He was a short filmmaker becoming a feature filmmaker. But, um, you know, aesthetically, what... um, (laughs) You'll have to stop me, because it's... (laughs) Um, I think of the move, the moving, the tracking shots in this film, and we've all seen tracking shots forever, but the hypnotic quality of the tracking shots in the film, the associative editing, the tracking shots of Never that lead into the tracking shots of Hiroshima, and there's something about the tracking shots that go into the screen, you know, that has this, um, all the other kinds of associative editing, the, the, um, Japanese man's hand twitching, mm-hmm. cutting to the soldier. Um, those kinds of issues. Um, the, the word and image. I mean, most of the, you know, we have dialogue, mm-hmm. but then we have voiceover narration, um, which is sometimes dialogue. In the beginning of the film, we're, we're supposed to believe she's talking to him while they're making love about having seen things in Hiroshima. Um, but then at the very end, we suddenly get interior monologue for you know voiceover um, her voiceover over her image as interior monologue, mm-hmm. um, which is is different. Those are just a few of the things um, you know that that mark the the aesthetic um, novelty. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, as, as you said, uh, Rene had made several documentaries, short documentaries before mm-hmm. making this his first feature film and. Hiroshima Monomore was initially intended to be another short documentary, right. but he found the commission of making a film about the atomic bomb simply impossible. Right. Um, so the film takes on the impossibility of, Im- of imagining the unimaginable. And as you said, it, pre- it, it, it immerses us in this 
dreamlike images and dialogue and kind of incantatory speech. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. But does the film, or how does the film retain something of its conceptual origins as a documentary? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, his documentaries are uh, almost unlike any other documentaries, <laughs> right? Um, they're, they're kind of like we w- what we would now call essay films in a, cer- in a certain way, so that his documentaries used poetic text. I mean, Night, Night and Fog, which a lot of people have seen, uses this poetic text written by Jean Carroll. Um, and um, this, the same thing with statues also uh, die, which, ha- um, which Chris Marco was involved in. And um, his documentary did an industrial on the song of styrene, you know, a plastic. Mm-hmm. And Raymond Quino, um, a very expento- experimental French author, wrote the... So first of all, his, do- his documentaries share something with um, the lyrical style of Hiroshima. But then we have, in the, in the opening prologue, we have kind of a um, mixture of this avant-garde love film and that documentary about Hiroshima, um, a documentary partly about documenting mm-hmm. Hiroshima because we go to the museum and he's filming what is already documentary materials. So um, it certainly draws on that. And I, I suppose the beginning of the film is almost like the documentary he never made. And partly um, uh, it's also that he was afraid of repeating Night and Fog, which was about the Holocaust. And he had already made the unfilmable film about atrocity, mm-hmm. right? And so he was being asked to make another film about atrocity, and um, I think he, he felt he had to do something different. Well, just shifting direction a little bit, um, although the film, we've talked a lot about Rene and his background, um, although he directed it, it was written by Marguerite Duras, mm-hmm. one of France's greatest modern novelists. Uh, she was born in French Indochina, contemporary Vietnam. What were her contributions to the screenplay and shaping the story and the characters? Um, how did she come to be involved in the film? Yeah, well, first there was this um, documentary that he ended up not wanting to make, right? And then he involved Chris Marker in it. He involved someone else. They all dropped out of it because of not being able to figure out a way to make this film. And then his producers um, suggested other writers that he was not enthusiastic about. And he had just read... Um, a novel by Marguerite Duras and was very impressed by it. So as, as far as I know, he kind of cold called her and um, asked whether she'd be interested in meeting with him, and she was. Uh, and, you know, they talked for hours, and by, by the time they were done, she had kind of signed on to the project. And all he gave her was the barest outline of a narrative. It's a love story. One, the man is in Japan, the woman um, is French, um, and um, there, ha- yeah, and there, ha- and there has to be this backstory of a German lover. And then she ran with it. He told her to be as literary as she wanted to be, and it seemed to have been a very happy collaboration. Um, every time she finished part of it, she would show it to Renee before she wrote more, and he would sort of approve where she was going. It's unthinkable without Marguerite Duras. I mean, he. Um, Rene often said he wasn't, he, he didn't like, like the, um, 
the, the other new wave directors. He wasn't interested in being an author. He called himself a metteur en scène, you know, just a director. And he said that she gave him the libretto to mm-hmm. which he set images, again, using a meta- musical metaphor. So um, it's uh, unthinkable without her. It's really, it's, it's kind of like last year at Mari and Body's later film, uh, 61, working with Alain Rob Grier. Again, that's a film that's unthinkable without mm-hmm. the script by Rob Grier. Mm-hmm. Well, French New Wave films did not significantly challenge traditional representations of women. Uh, given Duras's involvement in the film, which I think is a constant, in some ways, for a lot of your interest in the film, beyond other things, yeah. but that it's a French New Wave where uh, you know a woman's presence is as shaping this film right. is very significant. Um, so how is it distinctive in this respect? How would you compare it to the representation of women in other French New Wave films of the period? Yeah, well, I'll just go with Breathless, um, because I, I screened it fairly recently, and, and I actually confess to being somewhat shocked at it, in that um, I forgot, you know, and, you know, also it was a different era when one saw that film in these questions. But, I mean, um, Breathless is a completely, totally sexist, male-oriented film. I mean, it doesn't take away from its being an important film in um, new wave film history, but just some examples. It's all about the character of Michelle, Jean-Paul Belmondo, um, trying to get uh, Patricia Jean Seberg, a Jean Seberg, um, in bed. Now, on some level, you might say, well, isn't that what this film's about? <laughs> in that it is about this man mm-hmm. wanting her to stay longer, but it's about a love, mm-hmm. you know. It's not just about lust. Whereas um, the, but the uh, there were lines in. I mean, the beginning of Breathless. Michelle walks through the street and calls assorted women dogs. Um, he tells Patricia how many women he slept with just since he last slept with her. He brags about um, in Sweden you get laid three times a day. When she says she's pregnant by him, he says you should have been more careful. I mean. It, you know, everybody's telling her to smile. Um, and the other thing, too, is just age. Um, Jean Seberg was 21 when she made um, Breathless, um, and Anna Karina was 20 when she made um, A Woman is a Woman. And um, Emmanuel Riva is 32, playing a 34-year-old just... married mother. You know, I mean, the idea of you know, most of the French wave, or Godard wanting to have a main character as a mother. Um, so it's, she's, in, in 1959 terms, she's a middle-aged woman, you know, um, very unconventional, you know, having an affair, she's had other affairs, I like men, you know. Um, all, all of that is very untraditional. She's a rebel, she was a rebel growing up in France. She's kind of doing an impossible love again here, so um, it's, it's very, very um, different, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just to sh- ask a related question, so what would you say about its representation of masculinity and mm-hmm. the nation? Um, as one critic remarked, she said, quote, while the Japanese man understands the French woman's tragedy acting as a conduit for the audience, uh, the audience still knows nothing about him. Mm-hmm. So could you say more how you see his role in the film? Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely the case, I mean, and this is maybe what makes it a strong film in terms of a woman, that she leads the narrative. She's the one who says no. She's the one who's 
um, desired. And um, I think, you know, it's partly that, um, first of all, it's written by Dura, right? And to tell you the truth, the, when I taught this film, I've taught it in a film and literature class, and um, I teach it with Dura's much later novel, um, The Lover, the Lover written in 1984. And in The Lover, it talks about her being born in French Indochina, and it is kind of a memoir um, about her relationship with an Asian man when she was um, a teenager. And um, again, written from her point of view and the kind of, and also how um, she was um, shunned in the French community because um, she was seeing an Asian, Asian man. So I think the fact that we're concentrating on the French woman and not the Asian man is, is you know, a lot to do with Dara and what she knows. And mm-hmm. also, um, I think it goes to all of that discourse about you know nothing. Um, she cannot possibly know, understand Hiroshima. She cannot possibly understand him. He probably cannot possibly understand her. Uh, despite the fact that he seems to believe that he does. So um, I can see that it would be kind of seen as problematic um, on some level because she's the focus, but on the other hand, we're, you know, it's a French filmmaker, it's a French writer. Um, not surprising. I, well, I had, in getting ready for this evening, I had read a few recent articles that say that basically he's constructed as as much as you described her as a mm-hmm. kind of modern woman, yeah, um, that he is a kind of modern post-war man, mm-hmm. technocrat. He's an architect who's interested in politics. He could be at ease. He speaks fluent French. Mm-hmm. He could be, you know, at ease in any kind of urban context. It, you know, in right. fact, the the whole landscape of the of the new Hiroshima is very, you know new architecture, these kind of new spaces, as opposed to Nevers, which is unchanged, locked in time. Um, And so what people are saying is that, you know, so, okay, so this film, it is her story. And and Mm -hmm. and René said many times when he was asked about it, he said he didn't think that they could make, he didn't want to make the film about a Japanese response to the war because he said the Japanese need to tell their own story. Mm -hmm. But instead, and you can see it a little bit with the characters and the plotting that, that, you know, the woman, the architect, even the German soldier, they're all victims of a war that, supersedes them in so many ways. You know, this idea that this, you know, Renee wanted to make an anti-war film, a film about peace, but about the various kind of collateral damage that happened and and kind of psychic toll it takes. Um, But, yeah, so I was just, I was very curious about it because in one analysis, I was saying this to Lucy earlier, they were claiming that in those opening shots after the bodies are covered in ash, That that there's this very distinctive difference mm-hmm. between the t- the skin tone of the actors that the, they wanted her to look more white, mm-hmm. and I'm watching it tonight. I couldn't I see don't buy that. that really. Yeah, no. I, but but there, I think the argument here is there, a concern to say that the film is blind to its own kind of blind spots yeah. about. Um, how it's telling the story. Um, well, where I think it's... Uh, first of all, I did read um, somewhere that they chose... I mean, um, Okada, the actor, um, 
is but but is a theater actor. I mean, he when Rene went to 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 um, Japan, he didn't have an actor. He already had Emmanuel Riva, who's also a theater actress. This is her first film. I mean, amazing performance for a first film performance. Amazing first film, um, and. I read that he wanted, I mean, this kind of, to some degree, goes against that reading, which is that he wanted a fairly westernized-looking mm-hmm. Japanese mm-hmm. man so as it wouldn't be exoticized in mm-hmm. some way. Now, you can read that in different ways. I mean, that's the, you know. Um, so that kind of goes against that he wanted the darkest skin, you know, to make it um, so... I, but the, but the blindness is interesting, I think, because um, the, uh, the other way, first of all, it's a French film about the atomic bomb, you know, um, and the French don't hold primary responsibility for the atomic right. bomb. So he gets a pass, you know what I mean? And that's the reason why it was controversial to Americans. So that's, a, that's kind of something. But the other thing is that where's... The, the French collaboration with the Germans. You know, I mean, are we to read the love story as some... I don't think it's a metaphor for collaboration because we're supposed to be sympathetic. Well, can we talk a little bit about the film when it was released? Um, mm-hmm. I read that it caused somewhat of a scandal. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a very Catholic France, the, that this two married people are having an affair, that it's an interracial love story, which hadn't wasn't right. the thing. Um, but it was also scandalous in other ways through its um, connecting Asia and Europe, implicating the United States. Could you say something about its reception when uh, yeah. it's released? Well, in general, in terms of the um, press, what I you know I mean I read New York Times um, uh, reception was stellar. I mean it was praised to the hilt. Nothing about that actually. Nothing about. America and the Bomb. Same thing in Saturday Review. Dwight MacDonald waxed poetic about it. Um, so I didn't come across much about that controversy. The, the, I mean, the, you know, on some level, the one um, outsider, of course, was Pauline Kael. I didn't. Oh, that. yes. Who said that it was something like masochism for intellectuals or something like that. And she, of course, much preferred... Breathless. So I think there was the kind of, you know, um, high art, you know, versus popular cult. And it's, and I mean, this is, in fact, one of the first major post-war art films. I mean, we talk about Rome Open City, which I know, but that was, you know, a melodrama. And this film is, you know, fits everything according to, you know, David Bordwell's notion of the art film. Um, and so it was not, certainly not for everybody, and certainly not a popular kind of um, success. But uh, I think in general, I, I was actually surprised at how well received it. It was at least critically well received. And I think the criticism that I had come mm-hmm. across was really in like the Catholic press. Yeah, right. I, I mean, didn't read the Catholic press. Yes, no. <laughs> um, so it's not that I always read yeah, the Catholic right. press. It might have been on the index. Was that the, yeah, but... So, um, um, so what, in your view, just as a final question yeah. before we open up to the audience, what are the lasting repercussions of this film, do you think, mm-hmm. for later filmmaking, for literary culture, for right. the arts? Yeah, I think, well, as I just said, sort of the, the allowance of the art film, you know, the non-canonic story structure that has really going nowhere. In fact, at one point they say, 
all we have left to do is kill time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the radical nature of the characters, you know, they don't have any names. Um, the mixing up of identity, the fluidity of identities that he becomes in his own mind and in her mind, the German soldier. Um, the essay film, kind of, this is um, in some ways an essay film. It's not just a love story. It's a film with all sorts of intellectual content that one has to grasp as you process the love story. Radical subjectivity, I think. You know, I'm thinking of slightly later films like Persona, some of the Bergman films, or Wild Strawberries, the films that go into people's minds, memory, forgetting. I mean, later on it might be something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. the legacy, too, of linking, I mean, at, you know, at one point in the very end, they go into um, the Casablanca, right, which is, of course, no accident. I mean, some location person found that, and it was a treasure. Um, so you have the conventional film about love and war, you know, Casablanca. But this sort of allows for a whole other kind of um, film that maybe, you know, in recent, just recently, there was the film Cold War that sort of linked the whole history of um, the you know Soviet former Soviet Union with a love affair and um, so I think all of those issues temporality mm-hmm. the the atemporality of the film not just that it's distended um, sixteen hours you know that's all that's supposed to be um, but also the, the mixing up of time. Even her recollections are not in chronological order. And he, in fact, Rene, objected to these being called flashbacks because these were in her mind. Mm-hmm. And he, he thought of the flashback as when a story goes back to the past, actually. So the use of, of time, um, subjectivity, uh, literary, word and image, some of the things I said um, earlier, I think, are, you know, the, the legacy of a film like this. The, people have said The Pawnbroker, mm-hmm. the film that was made not so long after this with about a Holocaust survivor and the triggers to um, trauma. Yeah, and speaking about trauma, we have yeah. at least two significant trauma scholars right. in the audience. I shudder to say the word. I, I feel traumatized saying the word trauma in this audience. Right? Uh, but, but, I, but I was thinking, we were talking earlier too, that it is kind of treatment of trauma. I mean, there, mm-hmm. it's almost, it, there's a psychoanalytic kind of uh, element to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and her, him trying to draw out her memories. But of course, the dialogue itself is so stylized. The imagery right. is so stylized. And then there's just this wonderful listening to French voices and these beautiful right. images as she's trying. We were both talking about when we've taught it. Yeah. The moment when they're in the bar and yeah. she's talking and she finally she is able to speak about, you know, getting closer and closer to uh, the traumatic experience um, and and he slaps her. Yeah, that's a difficult moment. Yeah, and, and yeah. when teaching it, sometimes students just erupt in laughter, and you think, but it's not funny. I mean, yeah. uh, but, but to them, it's kind of a harsh. It's so sudden, and then you have all the people, the reaction shots in the bar. But it's also that there was that notion that when women get his, when particularly women get hysterical, you slap them. I mean, I don't think that was is now in any psychiatric handbook. I sort of doubt that that's there. But it is um, essential, so it seems peculiar and it seems mm-hmm. sort of violent. But it is, the film is a kind of talking cure. Yes. 
I mean, as you're saying, it really is um, a talking cure. And um, it and what's kind of interesting, people you know talk about it a lot about memory, but it's also the trauma of forgetting. I think yes. that's what's brilliant about the film that it's as horrible to forget as it is um, to remember, which. It's kind of like eternal sunshine. <laughs> but it's also going after bigger game to link that to a political project. Right. You know, saying yeah, it happened, this is it happened, it will happen it again. It will happen again. Which is fairly chilling. And that also, by the, the moment that he says to her, what did Hiroshima mean to you? And this is where she can understand nothing, sort of. And she said, it meant the end of the war. And then indifference. You know, so... And then the fear of indifference. The fear of indifference. Which is why yeah. they're making a film about peace in Hiroshima. Right, right. An event. Well, yeah. why don't we open up for questions from the audience? So you are talking about uh, how this is one of the like, most interesting films with, just a, with the, just, a, uh, just a position of image and words. And uh, you are talking about that. And uh, it, that, I mean... Uh, Seeing this film, like where it's very reminiscent for me, because it reminds me a lot, of, like for it reminds me of the Lajate by you know Chris Marker, mm-hmm. and it eventually bring up Chris Marker and how their collaboration with Rene, so it began to make sense to me. Like, uh, could you elaborate more on the Chris Marker and uh, yeah, and Lajate, please? Well, yeah, well Lajate, of course, is a kind of impossible narrative. Some some people call it a narrative of a man recollecting his own death, you know. Um, but it's comprised all of photographs, you know. So it, it sort of questions the nature of photography in a way. Here, we didn't yet talk about the right. photographs in this film, but the photographs in this film are... are um, he, we see some of them in um, uh, the museum, you know, where they are documentary because they're in a museum. But then we see others of them in the reenactments where we're not so sure of the status of those images because it's in a reenactment. Um, so number one, I would say, the interest in photography. Um, also, the kind of circular temporality of a film like um, La, La Jete, the word image combination um, of, of La Jete as well um, is... Related, you know, the sort of essay film quality. But w- one thing about the photographs, which isn't so much La Jete because it's all staged, but here the photographs also, I think, raise some ethical is- issues, which is what do we get out of looking at images of people who are victims of atrocities? I mean, he's displaying them, the banners, you know, the placards are displaying them. But it also raises um, some of the similar um, questions that Night and Fog does about seeing a thousand dead bodies in a mass grave or naked, emaciated people. Is there a kind of um, pornography of horror or something like that? But I think the the photography, the quasi-sort of poetic, lyrical, the temporality of those films... Have, have some connection to, to each other. Yeah, uh, you talked about Rene and Dura, but I wonder, uh, to, to me, the, the score was very, very yeah. striking in the mm-hmm. film, and I was just wondering how, that, how they worked together. Uh, it didn't seem to me like there was, 
you know, that they had the film and then they just asked the um, composer to put something that, that fits. It seemed to me that they must have somehow worked together. Right. Do you, could you say a little bit about that? Well, the score, which is an incredible score, really is an amazing score, um, is organized according to themes that relate to um, different sections of the film, but they're recurrent sections. In other words, there's a score for lovemaking. I mean, there's a theme for lovemaking, that, that theme that we hear in the beginning of the film, which is mostly for the lovemaking between uh, the woman and the man. But at one point, we hear that score over the lovemaking of the German soldier and the woman. You know, so it links the two times. Um, there's um, the score that, that is kind of more for the documentary section of the museum that's very, 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 mm-hmm. very different um, and keyed to certain documentary moments. And then there's um, an element of the score that's the more jaunty kind of um, light score that um, attaches to all the moments that um, in her youth she's going to meet her lover. So I think that it was um, certainly created um, in relation to the different uh, elements of the narrative, but they go back and forth. And then the one moment, this is Giovanni Fusco, um, but Georges Delarue is also credited. But the only moment that um, is his theme is when the the man in the bar turns on the... um, phonograph machine, and we just hear a kind of, it's sort of a nondescript song. So Fusco didn't do that. Um, but yeah, they, I think they worked very closely to have different themes for different elements of the narrative. Um, and um, yeah. It's amazing it's his first film, because it's <laughs> so mature and, and all the themes and first style. First feature film. First feature film, thank right. you. And all the stylistic uh, methods and thematics are resonate throughout the rest of his career. Right. Um, in addition to the score, which is striking, um, the soundtrack is also quite uh, elaborate and well thought out and very masterful. Um, in addition, word and image working together, and right. I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, um, I mean, sometimes it's not just word and image, but it's even um, the sounds. For example, there's uh, most of the time when um, we are in, you know, the sequence in Nevers, you know, it's simply either the music, you know, as she's bicycling, or it's the um, silence of um, the cellar. But every now and then, I think there's one time when she's in the cellar, when the sounds from the um, Japanese bar follow through to, you know, again, just a few moments to link through the um, diegetic sound to um, the two time periods together. The other thing that um, is interesting is that uh, a lot of times when we're going back to the sequences in Nevers, like the first time she screams, she screams softly, but we hear nothing. It's, it's like a silent movie. Um, and then there's that moment later on when she screams, and it, it doesn't quite sound like a You know, there's something abstract about it. So um, 
And I think, isn't it in the beginning that she notices someone coughing yes, in another, in another day, room? Yeah, every day at 4 a.m. You know, okay. But, you know, why that detail? It's very interesting. I know it was 14 years after the war, so a lot of the trauma of the war people had moved on from, and there were a lot of other young people. But I'm still curious how the French public reacted to this movie about this woman who collaborated with, had an affair with a German soldier. Yeah, well, out. I mean, I've basically read the French critics, and they loved the film and never mentioned it. <laughs> you know, I'm not quite sure about the, the general French public um, reaction. But, I mean, within the film, she's punished for it. She goes mad. You know, she's traumatized. So it's not a film that, I mean, it's, it's a film that, you know, sympathetically portrays her and tries to kind of talk about the fact that despite the political social world, you know, on some level, people are going to react in impossible, problematic ways. But it's not a film that leaves her off the hook. You know, I mean, the, the, the people of, of um, her town, I mean, she's, she's, she's dead, right? I mean, her parents say that she's dead. Um, and... Um, and in fact, her father's pharmacy is closed. You know, so. Um, but we're talking also. These characters are twenty, twenty-two, and twenty-three. Right. So this She's whole 18. issue, yeah, yeah. A, this issue of collaboration, mm-hmm. when they're swept into something not of their making, which is part of the critique, I think, and the empathy, even though she, the French woman, is you know first with a German and then with a Japanese man and the whole access powers. But it's trying mm-hmm. to, I think, under, yeah. undermine that by talking about these people, what war does and how it affects people, ordinary people, their relationships, love, everything. Yeah, who don't know the, the boundaries. And then, of course, there is all that, dis- that earlier... Uh, uh, refrain of um, destroy, you know, you destroy me, you're good for me. I mean, on some level, it's also a kind of um, upsetting vision of love, which is an equal uh, amount of destruction and um, something wonderful, you, you know. Well, that's how love is experienced in the time of war. And maybe even not in time of war, right? <laughs> yes. We know something about that. Yeah. Anyways, everyone, please join me in thanking okay. Lucy Fisher for being with Thank us. Thank you. have been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv. 